Hello, my name is Matt Phelan. And my name is Gareth Dunlop. And we are recording our third episode of Working With Humans. Welcome, Gareth. Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to it. We are, um, I don't know if this sounds weird, but we're currently sitting in Gareth's hotel room um, just, near, just near Warren Street. Yeah. Um, Gareth is our first international guest, flown in, I'd like to say specifically for this uh, podcast, but I know that you're at an event called Podge tomorrow. Yes, I am indeed, yeah. Which um, I know is always fun. Um, just a quick... Uh, reminder of why we do this podcast I count myself as really really lucky because I get to meet so many amazing people and learn from them and this podcast is about sharing that learning with you guys I want to introduce Gareth in my words and then get Gareth to introduce him in his words so the way so I've known how long have we known each other Gareth oh five or six years Matt five or six years a little bit longer yeah yeah met via e-consultancy yeah which is a great network for digital marketers uh, the way I see Gareth is that the the two words that I would always put together are fun and learning. So whenever I see Gareth, we're always having a good time, but we're also sharing experiences that we both learn from. That's that's how I see you. How how do you see yourself, Gareth? It's it's almost impossible, I suppose, to see yourself as others see you. But I suppose I do like having a good time, and I do like learning stuff and growing and knowing <coughs> stuff. So that maybe sounds fair, Matt. Yeah, it sounds okay. Cool. No, and what what do you do for a living? I own and run a user experience design agency called Fathom. Yep, which so, we're going to come back to that. Yeah. Um, I've got some, uh, some, some tester questions, just okay. to, so everyone gets to know you. Okay. Uh, Boys Zone or Westlife? I have to go Westlife. Westlife. Yeah. Um, can you confirm or deny the rumours that you were on Blind Date? I can definitely <laughs> deny those rumours. So that is, that is, you're 100% putting that on record? I'm 100%, uh, bearing in mind who may listen to this, forced... <laughs> Uh, under duress to confirm that uh, I was not on that show. Okay, you've all heard that. Um, and do you believe in magic, yes or no? Oh, absolutely, yeah, the absolutely. world runs on magic, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so just before I got here, um, I came out of a meeting uh, with one of our clients, Park Runs, uh, and I mentioned that I was uh, coming to see you and you'd flown in from Belfast. They, interesting thing they shared with me, which is there's a, there's a link out there which I will share in this article, but when they were thinking about opening Park Runs in Belfast, which are I need to check the dates, but I think it was 2008, 2009. They were looking at their international expansion and they were advised not to go to Belfast. Um, and the advice was that because of segregation there, you would have to basically run two park runs. So they ignored that advice and just opened up a park run. It was a massive success. One thing I want to uh, touch on is you, so you... So what town did you grow up in? I grew up in a town called Antrim, about 15 miles outside Belfast. Yeah, so... Growing up in that, and what what um, what years were you at secondary school? I was at school eighty three to ninety. Eighty three to ninety. Yeah. So, do you believe growing up in Northern Ireland in that period did that did any of that stuff that was going on on a political level? And I don't want to talk about the politics or, or the religion of it. Did any of that shape that either the man you became or the entrepreneur you became? Uh, you know, I, I think what the park run story and what my own experiences have in common is that Belfast is one of those places that like so many places in the world, looks very different from the inside than it does from the outside. Yeah. So from the outside, you look in and you look for the headlines in the summary to try and assess what the city is like and you, you draw the conclusions that you would. But actually when you're, when you're in the city, it looks and it feels uh, very different. So you know, I, I look back almost with a sense of amazement in that you know, I, I never ever once ever felt unsafe growing up. Um, you know, I, I knew the places to go, places not to go, um, you know, sports centres to go, not go bars to go, not to go. Uh, you know, all all the all the ways of getting around. 
yeah. uh, and, and survive in, in, the, in, the, in the city. So I suppose it, it's impossible not to be influenced by, by your upbringing. And I suppose I, I feel more strongly about it now looking back than I did at the time. So it was just, it was just life, wasn't it? It was just life. It was, it was just the way it was. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was astonishingly normal. You know, l- l- looking back now that it is properly more normal, it's amazing to think that it was normal, but it was just completely normal. So, yeah. you know, British uh, army soldiers in the street was normal. Those big Saracen and Jeeps was normal. Um, getting frisked, getting into, out of shops was normal. Getting back, you know, all that stuff was just, just that was just what happened, yeah. you know. And it's only now you look back and realise how really abnormal it was. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think because when, when you grow up in England and all we, all we saw on the news was basically Sh- is it Shankill Road. Yeah. That's, that's all we knew of Belfast. And I went to Belfast in, for the first time in 2004 for a Strokes concert. They got cancelled, actually, and I still haven't seen the Strokes. <laughs> but the, when I got there, I couldn't believe how nice it was. Yeah. Because that was a view, that, that's, that's all we knew of it. Yeah. And then I was like, wow, this is a really beautiful city. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, so, I mean, to, to go back to your question, I mean, has, it, has it influenced me? I, I, think it on, I think it unquestionably has. Um, I think looking back, there's a couple of conclusions that I draw. I mean, one obvious one is, you know, when I cut my teeth at uh, Tybus, we had a, we had an old... What's Tybus, Gareth? Tybus was a web agency. Yeah. Uh, so I was there from 97 to 2009, uh, and we sold the business in 2008. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I, was, uh, I had planned to stay six months, I ended up staying 13 years. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, our, Why had you planned to stay six months? Because I started off life as a programmer, yeah, and I was moving home from Belfast, from Dublin to Belfast, and you I don't was, get many programmers that believe in magic. <laughs> uh, maybe more than you, more than you might think. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, anyone who's seen my old code would know that the only way that thing's going to work is by magic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, so I, so I moved um, uh, moved moved home to uh, Belfast, but our our chairman, our chairman was he was one of these old school chairmen who was uh, tough as hell. Um, you know, I look back and I, you know, I learned an unbelievable amount in those sort of eight to ten years that I worked for him. Sales were never good enough, margins were never high enough. There was yeah. always, you know, it doesn't matter what you brought them on. There was always, I think you could more in you. You know, he's, he's <laughs> um, but he set up. He started off life as an old, an old school advertising guy, and he set up in nineteen eighty two. So I think I look back and I really admire setting a business up in that era in the city. You know, yeah. um, my own parents uh, both gave up their jobs in the mid eighties to borrow a load of cash and set up what is now our family business, which, you know, 30, 35 years later is, is continues to thrive. Which does? Uh, residential care for adults with learning difficulties. Yep. So, um, and they've been at that 35 years, my brother now uh, runs that business, you know. But yep. I look back and, and when I look at the political context and the, the commercial context that comes out of that, how hard it was to get your hands on capital to borrow money. Uh, so I just, I just admire entrepreneurs who had a go in that, uh, in that, in that era. Yep. Um, but I think the big thing, and it's funny because your, your, your question has kind of made me sort of reflect more, more generally. I, I think the big thing that I have taken from it, uh, and I, I, I don't mean to be wise after the event or be overly sentimental, but uh, it, has, it has really reinforced to me the central role that vision plays in your life. Yeah. And I, I won't make this a political comment, but the, the challenge with Northern Ireland historically, and still to this day, is that many people in the country only have a vision for their part of the community. Yeah. Um, and the only vision that's going to get us through this is the vision that we can, everybody can buy, you know, and it's the kind of, it's the kind of vision that Mandela was somehow able to bring to South Africa that everybody yeah. could win on. Yeah. 
Um, so I think uh, the two things, as I reflect, how it has grown up in Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s, how has that influenced me? I think the first thing is I have a lot of admiration for people who set up and built and run thriving businesses in yep. that era. But the second thing is it tells me, you know, if you're going to get good outcomes, you've got to have a vision that works for everybody. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So and I think those are the two things. And you, you take that into business? I hope I do, Matt. Again, you know, it's very difficult to mark your own homework, but that would be the standard I would set for myself and I would hope that I would, that I would in some way try to divide. Yeah. yeah. And I think I, that's how, that, the reason I say that is because that's how I see you, because you always bring feeling to vision. Because vision isn't just a statement on a wall, is it? You can't just write something up. It's, it's how you bring that to life. And that, when I hear you talk, that's what I always hear from you. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's fair. And I mean, for, for instance, you know, Fathom's vision is... Uh, to continue our journey in being the best human experience design agency on the island of Ireland, um, that and we're and we're we're very clear in that, and we're we're unapologetic about it. And our six strategic pillars represent how we how we understand that. It's not purely commercial. We're not saying we want to be the the biggest or the highest turnover. We we want to be the best according to a series of, of criteria. And that vision feels important to me. It's what it's what it's what unifies all of our activities. So I'm going to test you now. Um, you mentioned so we're going to talk about Gareth's craft now. Yeah. Um, you mentioned six strategic pillars. You mentioned vision. My daughter Isabella. She doesn't know what a strategic pillar is. She's five <laughs> years old. Okay. She's less imagined that we were about to go and meet her downstairs in a receptionist's lovely hotel, and I'm like, yeah, this is my friend Gareth. I mean, I know you've met her, but and she's like, Gareth, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? How do you how do you because the test the, the test that I love that test that. You don't understand what you do unless you can ex- explain it to a five or a six year old. Yeah. So yeah. Isabella, she's downstairs. You're gonna go and explain to her. What do you do? I think, Matt. Uh, so, so ultimately, I don't know. But I, I think what I would say is, Isabella, that that tablet that you get access to, whatever number of hours a week your parents let you get access to yeah. it. That that tablet that you use. The reason that you can use that just as well as you can use your coloring in books, or just as well as you can use your reading and writing books at school. The reason that you find that tablet as easy to use as all those other things yeah. is because people like me have invested huge amounts of time in making it really, really simple and really, really straightforward. So all the things that you do so effortlessly, yeah. the reason you can do that is because of, of UX. So yeah, I know this will sound like a really stupid question because you do this every day. Why is it so complicated to make something so simple? Uh, it's a, So I'm conscious that, so I mean, I can spend two hours talking about this and I, prom- yeah. but I promise you I won't. Um, I, so I, there's there's so much to say about it. Um, you know, one the the, so the overriding principle is that simplicity cannot be sprinkled on. Complexity has to be hauled out. So explain um, that again. Say that again. So, That's such a good nugget. I want to so, hear that again. So simplicity cannot be sprinkled on. Yeah. Complexity has to be hauled out. Yeah. So one of the reasons that those of us who are involved in the world of UX get a little bit a little bit precious. When our and job use UX just for everyone's clear is user experience. Is yes. that what you that's yeah, just that's, making it clear that's for exactly, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As my as my former UX director used to say, he wished it was called UE because experience begins with E, but I'm 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 spitting hairs. <laughs> spitting hairs. <laughs> uh, but so um your so your question your question was oh, what was your, your question? I wanted you to clarify that the point around simplicity. Oh. Why is it so difficult? To make something so simple. Yeah, gotcha. Oh, yeah. Sorry, and I was just saying. So the so the reason that the reason that those of us involved in UX get a little bit prickly when our craft is defined as purely being to do with the interface, um, is because if you're restricted to the interface, then what you're trying to do is to sprinkle on a little bit of magic dust. Yeah. But when you see UX as involving um, insight, 
and process and prototyping and iteration and design. When you see it as all those things, then actually yeah. what you do is you can you can bake simplicity in um, from the, from the start. The reason that the fundamental reason why UX is so difficult and simplicity is so difficult. I'll quote Jakob Nielsen here. Jakob Nielsen, who's a big usability guru in our world, says that the single most expensive lesson that digitally untransformed companies have yet to learn is how different they are to their users. Um, and the, the, the reason that software is regularly far, far too complex is because the people who are writing the software do not fully understand and know the people that they are designing or writing it for. Yeah. And what happens is they end up designing it and writing it for them and their mates yeah. who know loads about technology and they don't, they don't write it for the people or design it for the people for them. I, I had this exact same thing yesterday. I, went, uh, I gave up a couple of hours to go into a school to speak to the students about, about technology and big data. And I knew, because we've been working on a, a research project, have you heard of TikTok? Yes. So for those that don't know, TikTok is supposed to be the newest, biggest plat- social media platform for teenagers. And I was speaking to a group of people, kids that range from 14 to 18. So I thought I would impress them by telling them about the, asking them about TikTok. And they all laughed. And I, because I asked them, I said, do you like TikTok? And they all laughed and were embarrassed. And I was like, why are you, why are you laughing? And why are you embarrassed? Because they were like, that's for primary school kids. And that is a perfect example that I could have been working on a program to design something for those kids. Yeah. But that, that piece of data is a year out. They've all moved on. Yeah. Already. And that, for me, that sums up what you're talking about there, not designing something for yourself, designing it for who the user is. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, there's a lot, one of my favourite Tumblr accounts is... Tumblr, um, didn't realise it still existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking, you're talking about the old days, Matt, so I thought about it. It does, and, and it, it's, it's really good for some really niche geeky stuff, but one of my favourite Tumblr accounts is there is an account, with, an account which is set up, and the, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the theme of the account is that it calls out marketing that was conceived and signed off almost definitely by men in their 40s yeah. who are trying to be a different persona. So you've all seen the the, the, the banking poster that's trying to appeal yeah. to 20-year-olds and it just it makes you cringe. It's, a, you, fe- it's a feeling. You can't explain it or t- articulate it, but you can feel that it makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that's it exactly. That's, that's, that's it exactly. So to go back to your point about, about simplicity, you, you, only, you can only achieve simplicity when it's number one, baked in from the start, and number two, that you have co-designed your product with your users. So the reason Isabella can use her tablet is because when that tablet was being designed, um, Apple or uh, Samsung or whoever were spending loads of time with four and five year old kids with prototypes, watching how different design options work with different kids and keeping the best performing one. Does it have to be baked in at the beginning or can Theresa May call you now and, and, and help and get help with can you take something that's been that's that's already a mess and help let it down the line, or does it have to be baked in from the beginning? You so uh, again, I'll, I'll I can answer your question specifically because um, it wasn't Theresa May, but it was um, a UK government initiative ten years ago to provide more public services digitally. Yeah, and they put together GDS Government Digital Services, who are looking in from the outside. One of the finest leadership teams. I've ever seen, and I think history will record are one of the finest leadership teams in our lifetime. Um, and what they did from the start was they said, if you've given us this task, there are a number of things you've got to understand. So, so do not give us this task and tell us how to do it. If we're going to do it, we've got to get process and culture completely turned in its head. Yeah. Um, so they said things like, um, so they'd, they'd lovely phrases like, um, uh, usability is the new persuasion. 
So, so they, said, they said to the government, okay, we're going to achieve this for you, but the only way we can do this is to persuade the UK public that um, doing the accessing public services digitally is the quickest and easiest way to do it. So the only way we're going to stop them getting into post offices and picking up the phone and writing letters is to make online easy. So that we have to completely change how we do how we do uh, software. They they said um, we're not going to um, go and procure vendors and tell them to build a certain system. We're going to prototype with users, and only when UK citizens have said it's good enough, only then are we gonna are we gonna build. I'm it. I'm trying not to laugh because I'm I'm now thinking of all the case studies, especially banks, which are really bad at this. Rather than doing what you said, they just make the traditional thing really difficult to do, don't they? They make it really difficult to phone them. Rather, they use the stick rather than the carrot, don't yeah. they? They make it difficult to find them, but don't actually sort out the thing that they want you to do it. Yeah, would yeah. that be would that be fair? Uh, that that would that would be yes, that would be that would be part of it. Yeah, that, that would be part of it. No, I, I do think I do think that banks, many banks, are recognizing that how their customers feel they are being treated is increasingly tied in with how easy they feel their apps and digital channels are to use. So yeah. when you think about the car and the, and, the, and the stick, perhaps, yes, the stick is too heavy-handed, but certainly, you know, we, we work with two of the four largest banks in Ireland and they would be very wedded to the idea that the way banking is going to shape up in the next 10 or 15 years is those who treat their customers best digitally are going to win. Yeah. Um, and I do see, I mean, I, we, we look, we don't work with HSBC, but we look in and see with some of the stuff they do. And we would see, we look at Revolut and those guys who are shaking up that industry and there will be a big, big realisation that actually you can really make banking easy. Why does the word digital have to be in that sentence? You said the banks that are going to win are, customer, are banks that treat um, customers digitally best. I'm paraphrasing. Why does the word digital be in, have to be in there? Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily, Matt, but I do think the word remote has to be in there. In, in, in other words... Do you mean mobile by remote? Is, is that, do you mean the same thing? I, no, I just mean that, that um, a human is interfacing with something which isn't a human. Yep. So, so 40 years ago, the bank that I would have banked with would probably have been the one that my buddy was the manager or assistant manager. And we, and we knew each other and we'd come in. With it. And, and so how he treated or she treated me would determine how I felt the bank was treating me. Yep. But increasingly, those transactions are between a human and, and a voice interface, a mobile app, a, a website, yep. something that's not a human. Um, but it's a human engage, interacting with something that's not human. Yep. That's, that's what I mean. No, that, so that, for me, that, that's great insight going from that brings me on to my next point which is a lot of the content that we talk about on on this podcast is is around happiness people talked uh, Jana our last guest talked about mental health when you take all the data and you simplify it and you look at what makes people unhappy or happy or perform better or underperform or or mental health goes down etc etc going back to the word human is that you mentioned there if people the thing that I've learned from all this data is if if people don't feel human they they have the downside of things so mental health issues they're not feeling happy etc cetera, etc cetera. and that translates into customer service so you're talking there about um how there's less humans involved but using technology in a better way for you not to feel like inhuman mm-hmm. so the question i've got for you is the reverse of that which is can you ux a human can you apply those principles the other way around as in the way you look at culture, the way you're creating all those processes and things like that. Can you, can you, can you UX a human? Uh, yes, I, I, 
you you can you can definitely use UX principles to in general improve relations with with everybody that you meet in business and personal life and, and all the rest. I think I think you definitely can. Um, do you know? Uh, I said I'll, I'll go back if, if, just briefly. Um, there's all sorts of definitions for you for UX. Um, my my favorite definition of UX is that UX is what it feels like to use a product or a system or a service. It's what it feels so like. It's a feeling. Yes. Yep. It is. It is. And, and the way that I see that in my mind is it, UX is how you treat your users. It, it's how you're treating them. So in, yep. the, in the same way, if you were to come to my house and I was to look after you well or badly or offer yep. you a drink or not offer you a drink. I'm, so I, that's how I feel about interfaces. That yep. We are fulfilling our obligation to, to treat our customers well. And that's that, there's that saying, isn't there? That you don't remember what someone said to you. They'll, you remember how they made you feel. When it yeah. comes to employment, and then you're talking about that in the same as you interface. That is exactly yeah. So right. uh, so Maya Angelou was I think was who said that, and I think I think it's exactly the same. That when you you know so so and so because of that, the principles of UX are you know understanding user motivations, understanding employee motivations. Um, a big principle of UX would be that you've only earned the right to design when you have when you've listened to the user. It's, and you can see where I'm going with that in yeah. terms of you know you've only earned the right really to to lead or to um, to reward or to have a difficult conversation with someone. You've really only earned that right when you when you've understood what makes them yeah. what, what makes them tick. So I, I and maybe the final principle that's worth mentioning in the world in the world of UX is the the world's best products um, product teams have a real uh, restlessness and impatience and desire to get better all the time. And you know, Facebook is much better than it was ten years ago. Google's much better than it was ten years ago, and I think that's another bit. You know, I I hope that I, as someone who leads an agency, I hope I'm better than I was ten years ago, and in ten years' time, I hope I look back at me now and go, Do you know what, I've, I'm better, I'm better than I was. Yeah. So absolutely, all those principles of design thinking, which underpin UX, can, I think can definitely and should definitely uh, impact how one hopes to lead around an agency. So one of the things that we've we've definitely argued about him before is how long the website has to go. Like I I think I'm a bit more aggressive with it. I think websites haven't got long to go. You've got a longer um, view of how long a website's going to be round for. But just to indulge indulge my fantasy for a second. Let's imagine we've fast forwarded. I'm not even going to say the amount of years, but websites websites have gone to the point where device device technologies talking to each other so you don't you don't the, the the need for a website's gone how do you do you think in a world without websites that what you do for companies do you think that will play out in a new world and i'll give you the example i'll give you from the future um would be my recent trip to shanghai so everything is done in wechat websites very very little used even to the point where you don't use credit cards and cash anymore. Cash has gone for ages, credit cards are now out, and they use facial recognition when you go into a shop. So do you, these, these principles that you've shared with us, which I think are amazing, do they, do they live on? How does that live on? How does your industry live on in the future past websites? Or does it end? Uh, no, it, it, it lives on. It lives on because, because ultimately, um, I mean, you know, UX in in really simple terms is all about a human interacting with a non-human. So so UX applies to service design where we are interacting with um, you know getting seen in A and E or checking into a hotel. So that's yeah. a um, uh, you know UX applies to, to, to product design. So so it, the the thing which you are interacting with doesn't have to be a website. So the principles of UX and humanizing that experience applies to AR and VR and Internet of Things and voice 
driverless cars, you know, all the stuff that's not that far away, that will all need to be humanized. Yeah. Um, and the the principles of humanizing it um, are are pretty much are pretty much identical. And that was the that was the word you used right at the beginning. You called it human design. Is that right? Is that how you yes. described it? Human centered design. Yeah. Human centered design. That's yeah. how you describe your craft. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. And and you know what, Matt? If if because I get that, I get that more than UX. I kind of see what UX is, but as soon as you call it human centered design, I totally get it. Yeah. And you know, I would I would be more bullish about calling Fathom a human centered design agency or a human experience design agency if there were more people googling for it, googling yeah. for that term. It's just because uh, I think the term is more accurate, far more accurate. Um, and I, the reason I don't use it is because sometimes it requires a little bit of explanation. But it, yeah. I, I I strongly prefer the term. Yeah. I feel a trip onto Shanghai for us, Gary. Uh, <laughs> perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. So right now, that's amazing. Um, I'm just left with three questions to ask you. Yeah. Uh, lowest point of your career? Um, do you know, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite a focused, um, semi-stubborn sort of kind of person, so I, I, I'm fortunate that I don't suffer massive highs and big lows, but there's no doubt about it. The, the, the toughest moment of my professional career uh, was leaving Tybus, was recognising that my number was up, was recognising that I had got quite good at, at running an SME, but I just couldn't survive in that that corporate world where um, yeah your conversations were more with spreadsheets than necessarily people so yeah. uh, and I, I realised I had to leave so I'd been there 13 years I'd, I'd given I'd really given it a good go uh, but realised my number was up it was tough the good, the good news on that is the work we're doing with a lot of big companies is they are trying to get rid of that culture as well but it's taking a lot of time so I, I don't think you're unique there Gareth yeah, yeah. Um, highest point of your career oh th- there's, there's, there's been lots, Matt. I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. I mean, you know, we we sold Tybus, um, two thousand and eight. I was thirty seven at the time. So, um, similar to yourself with your four P's, um, thing. So it was, it was a real privilege to go through that process at, at a relatively young age. That was, that was a big high, and let's face it, you know, having gone through that high, um, I can't complain when the low happened eighteen months later. That's just life. I, you can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah. Um, but I've really, I've really enjoyed. You know, there's been so many folks that I've worked with along the way, and 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 the people along the way, and seeing them develop. That's that's been a big. Uh, I won't embarrass them by naming them, but there's there's folks who have come in as, as youngsters with a load of potential, and they have just, you know, they've just flourished. Uh, and I'd see loads of them that I work with some of them now, so that's why I'm not, uh, it'll be embarrassing to name them. But I get, I get a real kick out of seeing them, seeing them fly. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sum up, Gareth. That's been absolutely. Brilliant. I think the biggest thing I took it is for is the human centered design bit. That's when I finally really get what you're talking about. And I understand why you don't always call it that because of the industry is where it is. But the fact that you're part of the future of the industry is obviously a great thing. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming on. Um, I can see on my phone flashing up. People, we, we're meet, going to meet people for beer. So that learning and coffee, the, co- 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 sorry, we're coffee going to, and uh, uh, edit that out, edit that out. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to go meet some people for some coffee. Um, I so thank you I want to leave you with the final word um, thanks to all our listeners really appreciate it um, as usual if people have learned from this podcast it will continue to the next podcast we're only going to keep doing it as long as it's useful so please message Gareth Y if you found it useful what is the biggest last question Gareth what is the biggest learning of you in your career that you'd like to share with our listeners uh, it, it was it was a great it's a great question and it's made me it has made me uh, re- really really think um, I, there's you know in 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 third and third and second place and in, in third place I've got 
the importance of trusting and recognizing that there's every chance that many people on your team can do loads of things that you do better than you and just let them. Um, I think the second thing is, uh, and maybe this just comes with age, learn to be better at being direct and honest with people. Um, but I think actually for me, the big, the big thing is, I think what I have learned is the ability to really focus on what matters to me and to not get caught up in vanity projects, to not spend my time trying to look good in front of my friends, to not apologize for the fact that Fathom has 12 people in it and not 50. Um, and to just be really confident about the stuff that matters to me and what, and what um, com- comes out of that. And I think with that confidence means you don't feel the need to chase every single bit of work. You don't feel the need to self-promote, notwithstanding that I've just done a podcast. That's terribly <laughs> hypocritical. You're sharing, um, you're sharing, yeah. Gary. Um, no, I think for me, just the confidence around knowing yourself well enough to say, do you know what, this, is the, this fits for me and this is the stuff that I want to do, this is the stuff that matters. I think that's the stuff I've got best at, I hope. Gareth, as ever, I've learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, Matt, thanks for inviting me on. Pleasure, sir. Cheers.